Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll be looking at the first eight verses of this chapter, which I've been looking forward to preaching to you, one of my favorite passages in Nehemiah. And as you're turning there, I uh, came across a, a couple of quotes from uh, a commentary I was reading this week. It mentioned how in the 16th century, during Elizabethan England, uh, that England had such a reputation for rev- revering the Bible that French author Victor Hugo said this, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. And then regarding the pilgrims who arrived in North America in 1620, Daniel Webster uh, said of them, you know, the author of the dictionary, he said, the Bible came with them. And it's not to be doubted that to the free and universal reading of the Bible is to be ascribed in that age that men were indebted for right views of civil liberties. So again, the, the, the value of God's word shaping nations. Unfortunately, these two nations right, that were largely shaped by the principles of Scripture have dramatically lost their reverence for it. A survey released in May of last year found that only 11% of Americans read the Bible daily. Uh, 29% never read it. And then another 29% read it less than four times per year. So in other words, the majority of Americans spend almost no time in the Word of God. And those statistics are much worse when you compare them to England. Well, here we come in Nehemiah 8, where a people, the people in Israel have returned from exile and they have been doing so in several waves for almost 100 years by the time you get here. Uh, so they've been in the land. In fact, at the very end of chapter 7, we read, and when this, um, well, I'll just read the whole verse. So the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So they were returning. They had come back, but they were kind of living in their own towns, not really in, um, in, you know, going to Jerusalem much. And now that they've built the walls, things are beginning to change. Things are beginning to stir. Uh, but they, they still seems, seems like they have a, a long way to, glo- to go in terms of their understanding of God's law. They don't have a clear grasp of his law. And this makes sense, right? During exile, they lacked in, in wise spiritual guidance. Uh, there were, they weren't able to just go to the temple and listen and learn from the, uh, from the teachers, from the priests and the rabbis. And so uh, it, it seems unclear as well in these hundred years that they've returned how much of that is taking place. How much have they gone back to what they had prior to entering exile. It seems like a lot of them have just brought back some of their 
new formed traditions or lack of traditions, right? They've just sort of brought back where they've brought their secularism back into the promised land. So Ezra had traveled to Jerusalem with the book of the law 13 years prior to this passage, prior to the event that takes place in this passage. So he's He's been there, apparently. We don't know exactly where he was. It doesn't say anything. We just know that he initially got the book of the law and went to Jerusalem 13 years ago. And this is now the first time that we're hearing about what's going on. So we don't know if he got there, if he read it initially, and then now, 13 years later, they're experiencing a revival. That's one option. Another option is that he got there and he continued to do his scribal work and, and to his priestly duties to whatever degree they were, they were doing them at that time. They were performing them. But on a, on a lighter, you know, like on a maybe a behind-the-scenes sort of scale for him. He wasn't necessarily up, up front and center, as this book is focusing on the rebuilding of the walls under Nehemiah. But eventually, Ezra, I mean, it seems that Ezra has been building some kind of reputation as a teacher of the law because that's who they call. That's who the people ask to come in this chapter, as we'll see. So he... It seems likely that he was there at some level doing the work that God had called him to, and now there is an experience or a desire for him to take a role, a very prominent role, in this public display where they would uh, read the law uh, to the whole gathered assembly. So, after the completion of the wall, the subsequent census that we looked at last time, which was now four weeks ago, the people have invited Ezra to lead them in really what is sort of a, a covenant ceremony, uh, a renewal ceremony, right? and it sparks a spiritual revival and a moral reformation in Israel. We'll see that their greatest need, the greatest need that the people had is what every generation of believers needs. It's an understanding of God's revelation. And so let's read this passage, but before we do so, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do want to be people of your word, people who honor your word, who prioritize it in our lives, and people who are attentive to your word, people who submit under it. Lord, we ask that you would be at work even now as we read it, and that your spirit would Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, and that our hearts would be softened to it, that as we read earlier, we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we know that that means your spirit must join with our faith and cause us uh, to apply this directly to our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that and that you would... um, Continue to give us um, a a greater desire, a greater longing uh, to stand upon your word, that it would be foundational in our lives, that it would be central to everything we think, say, and do. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah. On his right hand, and on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sins so that the people understood the reading. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first thing we'll consider here is your, the first point in your outline is the priority of preaching. We'll see this in verses 1 through 3, the priority of preaching. We start off by seeing that everyone is, is gathered in one place. There's nothing special about the water gate. Um, maybe there's some symbolism there, but it, 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 it's not obvious from the text. Um, so they gather in a place, probably simply the best location to fit everyone who was gathering together. Uh, the temple would have been too small for this crowd, probably somewhere between thirty to 50,000 people, if uh, we're considering the number uh, based on what we read in the previous chapter. Uh, chapter 7, verses 66 through 67 gives us a range to think about. So the location is is not necessarily the important thing, right? It's that they are prioritizing gathering together, being together. And you can recall how divided this community was back in chapter 5. They experienced class division where the rich are exploiting the poor to the extent that they're actually enslaving one another. And so it would seem a proper reconciliation has now taken place, and they're moving forward as one. They're moving forward in unity with the same purpose and goals. And everyone gathered on this occasion to hear Ezra read God's word. They call upon Ezra. They knew who to call when they wanted to hear the word read and explained. And so this is why I would say that as a, a scribe, uh, we know it was Ezra's duty to study scripture. And he would have been an expert in the law. And apparently the people know him. They know he is an expert. They know he's who they want to read and teach them from God's word. And so everyone who could understand was encouraged to be there, according to verse 2. Now, 
this would have included little ones. You can get this from Deuteronomy 31, verses 12 through 13. Uh, Joshua 8, 35, which is probably an identical kind of ceremony that was taking place, a covenant renewal ceremony that Joshua leads where he takes them through the book of the law. And he reads to everyone present, and it says specifically there that little ones were present. Uh, you can see the same thing as well in Second Chronicles 20, verse 13. In Ezra chapter 10, it mentions children being present for, for Ezra's reading of the law. So, uh, or, or from, from that other occasion where Ezra's reading it in chapter 10. Now here, it says that uh, those who could understand. So the question that we would have is at what, at what point do, were the kids, like what kids were not present at this reading? Um, Joel chapter 2.16 says that even nursing infants were expected to, to be there, at least on, on, on that occasion. So maybe here, the nursing infants were the only ones that kind of had an excused absence. <laughs> but probably, I mean, it's, I think it's presumptuous for us to assume at what age a child can understand a sermon. I think the church oftentimes misses this opportunity. We assume that children um, need to have kind of an age-appropriate opportunity while the, the, the sermon is being preached. And so some churches will dismiss them for the entire worship service. Others will say, well, they can sing with us, but as soon as the, you know, the really heavy, meaty stuff comes out, well, we'll send them to, to find the milk. Right? And, and I think this is a, a, this is a loss. Not only are we separating families, children from their parents, whom they need to be modeling and emulating in, in how they worship God, but we're also giving them the impression that, that the, the way they're worshiping is, is, is going to be something that they want later on. So as they are invited to you know, come back to the worship service with the adults, it's sort of like, well, I want to be with the, with the fun group again. Uh, church becomes all about playing games, about coloring. And so they wonder, as they get older, why they never learn to appreciate the worship service. And I think much of the evangelical church has transformed into a perpetual youth group. Because that's all we know church to be. So you'll notice here. What Ezra doesn't do is dismiss all of the children at some point before he reads. He doesn't dismiss them to youth activities just before he begins reading and preaching God's word. He expects everyone to be there, everyone to listen. And so if the children had questions, if they had concerns or they were lost and confused, who would they go to for answers? Well, God gives us that instruction Throughout scripture, he tells them to ask their parents. Exodus 12, 26 and following, Deuteronomy 6, 6. God's commands are to be given to our children, to be reminding them. They're going to have questions. They're going to see things and say, what does this mean? You're supposed to know how to show them, give them the answer. And if you don't know the answer, then you can go to your elders and your pastor for help. But this was an important time in the life of Israel where festivals, it was a festival season. It was a time where, where the whole family gathered together and learned about their past, learned about their history, and celebrated God's ongoing provision for them. 
It was crucial that they were present. It was crucial that they prioritized sitting under the reading of God's word. The first day of the seventh month, they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. Ten days later, they would celebrate the Day of Atonement. And then between days 15 and 21, they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So this was almost like the beginning of a new year for them because of the way that, you know, the significance of the festivals that they're celebrating. They're gathering together the whole assembly. This also was instituted in Deuteronomy 31, uh, verses 12 through 13, where every seventh year they were to open up the book of Moses and read through the law with them. And so we see in in verse 3 here, Ezra faces uh, the people, and he's reading to them from early morning until midday, roughly five to six hours. So I don't want to hear any complaints about a 30-minute sermon, okay? (laughs) If Ezra read all of the books commonly attributed to Moses, then he would have read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, I listen to the audio book frequently for my devotional. That's how I, I read it. I like to listen to it as well. I know that it would take anywhere from 12 to 15 hours just to read through those books. And so he didn't have that time. So he's more than likely either reading Deuteronomy or portions of the Pentateuch that are pieced together for this particular festival. But but regardless, the point is he read for an extremely long time. And the people were attentive. And we know that they they added explanation. So it wasn't that he was just reading the law, but he was actually explaining as he went along. So the remarkable thing here is that all the people were attentive. Their ears were attentive. They remained engaged for five to six hours. Again, this is the same thing Joshua had done when he renewed the covenant in Joshua 8.35. This was a, an occurrence that happened every seven years, a long period of time. So they would have occasions in their life. Every, every follower of God would have every seven years this occurrence, this opportunity. And it seems like, at least on this occasion, that they, that they were standing. We'll get to that later. That they were standing throughout. So I'm certain that Ezra and Joshua were in leagues of their own, right, in terms of the way they could teach and read God's word. They don't stumble over the names. It would have been very familiar, understanding how to, how to read it perfectly. But God's word always captivates those who are interested in glorifying its author. It should always be captivating to us. The people had a hunger for the word of God that was evident by their request for Ezra to teach from it, as well as their commitment to remain attentive throughout its reading. They expected to hear from God, and we'll consider their response next week, but it will be evident that they did hear from God, that they respond appropriately. So God made you to glorify him, to show you how he how to do that, he has given you his word. 
And so when you believe that the word of God is the only rule for faith and obedience, as larger catechism question three teaches, then you will prioritize it in your life. And that begins with showing up and paying attention whenever it's opened and explained. And so whenever preaching is prioritized, it's accompanied by a reverent posture. We talk about this frequently, coming before God with reverence. It's, it's really part of the, the emphasis in that uh, call to worship and the prayer of invocation. We're, we're acknowledging this great maker of ours who has invited us to worship him. And so we want to come with humility, right? We want to come with reverence. Well, that's the posture we see here in preaching from verses 4 through 6. The posture of preaching is your second point in the outline. They begin by, by making, it says that they, pr- um, they made for this purpose a platform. Um, some have suggested maybe it was some kind of pulpit, elevated pulpit. We know that the word itself occurs several other times in Scripture, but only of a tower, it's always in reference to a tower. This is the first time where it's spoken of as a platform or something that someone would stand upon uh, for this purpose. But it does speak to the fact that this is elevated to some height, right? So that all of the people who are gathered together could, could see Ezra as he's reading the word. It's not, it, it wasn't done to magnify Ezra. It was to honor the book of the law that he was reading. It was to allow everyone to be engaged, to see as he's reading and teaching and explaining. And so I would say there is an application to the, pul- to the pulpit, even though it, it was probably much larger than a pulpit, because we know that there were, there were 13 people standing on his side, right? six on one side and seven on the other. And so this is a platform, really, that he's reading from. But the idea that you would have a designated place from which the word of God is taught, is proclaimed and taught, so that you would look up and see the the elevated word of God, right? The priority of the word. I think it's a, a shame that many churches have removed the pulpit or made it as invisible as they can. Uh, I've seen too many plexiglass pulpits. You just can't, like, what's the point there? It does the opposite of what a pulpit is meant to do. It does the opposite. It draws your attention to the person. Now you can see all of them. So when the pulpit is removed or replaced with this invisible stand, the preacher is highlighted rather than scripture. Instead, what we see here is that Ezra's position from that elevated platform it elevates god's word in the eyes of those who are listening and allows all of them to see and to hear what he's teaching so again six men stood on ezra's right seven are on his left why 13 we don't know and we don't really know um, why who these men were we're not told precisely we know that the next list of 13 men is were levites so they belong to the, the priesthood. They're a part of the, the, the class of men who are called to teach and to interpret God's law for the people. But that's, we don't know about these, this first list of men. They might have simply been laymen. One, one commentator suggests that they, uh, because it doesn't designate them as Levites, that they are just 
ordinary men, maybe fathers of their households who they are standing next to him representing right, the, the heads of their households and, and sim- symbolizing the fact that each home is to uh, revere and reverence God's word and be attentive, sort of modeling for the people how we could uh, stand and, and listen uh, for that long. Um, it could have been that they were uh, some way related to the, the priestly tribe. We don't, it, even though it doesn't specifically say that. I think it's too difficult for us to know and to really uh, take too much from this other than to say that these were probably some level of, I think, some level of, of spiritual authority or leadership for the people to emulate, for the people to, uh, to, to see standing next to Ezra and and witnessing their reverence for the law. And in verse 5, we see that all the people stood as Ezra read from the, the book. And we're not told if they remained standing. Uh, potentially, they did. Maybe there were breaks in the teaching where they could sit down, especially if there were little ones there. It's hard to imagine them standing for that long. But it doesn't tell us so. All we know is that this is symbolic of their reverence, right? their reverence for the word of God, reverent hearts. Um, it's not the only posture you find in scripture when the Bible is read. Uh, so, so those who would say that this is a principle that we should always apply, that every time you come to church where the Bible is read, we should stand and listen. Well, I think there's some, you know, I, I don't have any problem doing that. But I think to suggest that that's a principle that you find in scripture is 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 going further than scripture does and it's not a command that you would stand every time the word of god is read in fact mary we are told listened to jesus while sitting at his feet and that was a posture of her humility before him in luke chapter 10 38 you have jeremiah's scribe baruch who was sitting him he was sitting while he read um, the word of god to the people so whether you're reading the word of God or listening to the word of God, uh, the posture that's being emphasized here is a heartfelt reverence. Right? That should always be expected. Um, and if you're in a posture that makes you sleepy, maybe get in a different posture. Maybe they were standing because five hours, you're, you're going to have a hard time being attentive if you're not making it a little bit uncomfortable for yourself. So there was some wisdom in that. But that's what's, what's going on here is it's an emphasis upon our hearts, upon the reverence we have for God's word. And so after the book was opened, Ezra gave a blessing to God, and then um, the people give their agreement to that. Right? They lift up their hands while they said, Amen, Amen. And they bowed their heads in worship. They prostrate themselves to the ground before God. Lifting up one's hands was a common gesture for prayer in the ancient Near East. Um, Occasionally, someone will ask me why we don't raise our hands in worship. And for some of you, it seems weird that people aren't more engaged when we're singing. And it's an an important question to consider. Uh, I remember asking the same thing when I first began attending Sierra View uh, Presbyterian Church. And... Right, I had come from a church previously where for a few years they actively discouraged people from doing that. 
And if you wanted to raise your hand, you should go to the back. Make sure you're not a distraction to anyone. And I can understand that to a degree, but it seems extreme when you have several examples in Scripture of actually being instructed to lift your hands in several Psalms, for instance. You can see Psalm 134, verse 2, Psalm 28, 2, Psalm 63, 4, Lamentations 341, 1 Timothy 2, 8 speaks of lifting hands in prayer. And singing is a form of prayer. So it seems extreme to give some kind of instruction in that regard. And I would say, on the other hand, it's also, um, it can be uncomfortable when someone is telling you to lift your hands. or We're all going to lift our hands for this particular song. And you're, you're feeling compelled to do something. I think, I think to, we tend to do the things that, we feel, that feel natural to us. And I think we need to make sure that, that uh, right, we're not creating some kind of steadfast rule in either direction, that every time we sing, we must raise our hands, or it just means that we're not really into it, that we're not really engaged. Um, you know, I think we can be judgmental on both sides there. And we need to be careful. And in the end, it's not the outward posture. Right? It's, it's, it's that inward posture of your heart. So it's far more important that our hearts are in tune with what we are doing. Disengaged worship is not worship. And so we do not receive the spiritual benefits of worship from simply reciting a formula. Right? You can't just put you know, A and B and C in place and assume it's, it's all going to work out this time. And if I just do these things, that it creates the perfect formula. And there's not this perfect balance of liturgical elements that will result in the same outcome for all who attend and participate in a worship service. Fortunately, God works in different ways to different degrees in all of us. And so reverence for God's word and a spiritual longing to understand his will are characteristics of the people of God. And we will go through various seasons and challenges where that's easier to do at times than others. But making ourselves available, continually putting ourselves under its teaching is crucial. So those who prioritize and reverence God's word are prepared to receive it. And that's what we find in verses 7 through 8, the purpose of God's word. And verse 17, there's another list of these 13 Levites now who are tasked with helping Ezra explain the law to the people. And it's, it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what, how they're doing this. It's possible that Ezra taught for a time and then they took, they took a, a turn. Uh, they, they were trained in teaching God's law as well, so that's possible. It's also possible that with the, large, with the, the size of this group, uh, that as Ezra is teaching, they're, they're listening and hearing, and then they're taking that and making sure that everyone has an understanding, right, so that they're going around. It says that the people remained in their place, so maybe that implies that these Levites didn't remain in place, that they're moving around among the people and going wherever there might be questions or concerns or, you know, hands raised or people falling asleep that need a little help, something like that, right? So I, we don't know, but there's, there's some level of, of teamwork taking place here as they make sure what? As they make sure that everyone understands. That's the goal. That's the purpose. It's that they would understand the law. 
And that gets hammered home in the, at the end here in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The goal of reading and giving the sense of the law was to provide the people with an understanding of God's will. They needed to be able to read the law clearly. Now, that could refer to translating it. It's possible that as they came back from exile, they had lost the ability to understand Hebrew. And so as they're listening, uh, they need a translator. They need someone who can actually give them a clear understanding. Uh, that's, that's one way of understanding it. Also, it could just mean that they're giving them a meaning of the text, a clear interpretation of the text, much closer to preaching. Either way, what's plain is that they're there. These Levites are there to promote the, um, uh, an understanding of God's word. They're not there to promote their own superior knowledge, to talk about themselves, right? But they're to serve the spiritual needs of the people. And I know when, when I was in seminary and I began teaching Sunday school um, and, and preaching on occasion, I, I know I was overly focused on myself. Uh, you might think, well, this is an interesting illustration of yourself that you're giving here to, to talk about it. But I wanted, I wanted to sound a certain way in the pulpit. I wanted to combine the style of some preachers with the theological substance of others. I even tried inserting gestures into my notes. Do this when you get to this point. And I, I, I had it all figured out. And then I read uh, Preaching Pure and Simple by Stuart Olyot. It's a book I recommend to, to other uh, new preachers or new to preaching. It, it talks about just the importance, right, the purpose of preaching to explain God's word. If you can make it clear, to be simple. I'm not called to be someone else. I'm not here to entertain you or to awe you with some impeccable articulation. Right? In fact, Paul, on several occasions, notes how unskilled he was and how inarticulate he was. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. And so when providing clarity is the goal, then my tone is not all that important and the gestures that I make are just sort of not, I don't really think about them anymore. Right? The only bad sermon is the one that leaves you confused. Now that I've set the bar incredibly low, <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, I could be a preacher. Maybe some of you suddenly feel called to the task. That sounds like a great career. Anyone could do it. Well, you should know that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses. He didn't take this task lightly. He gave himself to years and years of study. And he loved God's word to the degree that he wanted to teach it. He felt compelled to teach it. You can read about that in Ezra 7. Ezra possessed a heart for studying the law, not only to teach it, but in order to obey it. And we know from James 3.1 that those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness for what they know. So it is not for everyone. Right? This is the reason he says not many of you should pursue becoming teachers. But the question for you as 
members of the church is do you strive to understand God's word on Sunday mornings in corporate worship? Is that the purpose, right? Is that, is that your goal when you're here to understand God's will for your life? Do you pay attention as your family engages God's word in family worship during the week? Are you regularly reading, understanding, and applying God's word personally? Right, the quality of your spiritual maturity depends upon an eager expectation to understand God's word. And that will be evident any given day of the week. I'll close with this thought. Re revivals always involve a reverence for scripture. And the Reformation, right, Reformation occurs in churches and communities, even in nations where people prioritize the Bible. And John Calvin understood this. Right? It's why he preached over 2,000 expository sermons during his ministry in Geneva. And on Easter Sunday in 1538, there were city authorities that banished Calvin because he refused to give the Lord's Supper to community leaders, people who were prominent in the community, who were also living in open sin. So he refused to give them communion, and it, and it ultimately... Uh, sent him packing. Right? The city authorities sided with the community leaders. And then he found himself in Strasbourg before it was a French city, and, and he preached there to 500 uh, French refugees. And he spent three happy years there before getting a letter from the city fathers in Geneva requesting him to return. And so after three and a half years of absence, Easter Sunday, 1538, he comes back in September um, of 1541, steps into a pul the pulpit, and guess where he picks back up? Right where he left off. Goes to the very next verse. What did they need more than anything? They needed to understand God's will, God's word. And how do we do that? We do that through the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, as he reveals himself after the resurrection to the disciples there, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Notice the scripture that he's unfolding for them is the Old Testament. And he tells them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead. No matter where you are, the gospel should be central. Whether you're reading God's word from a prophet, from, from a, a book of history in the Bible, then you should be applying it to the gospel, recognizing what Christ has done for you and recognizing that it is him himself who gives you the ability to understand it rightly and to apply it to your lives. And so let us ask him now to do that. Heavenly Father, we 
acknowledge our need and our dependence upon you to understand. We thank you that you have given us your son, that by your spirit we can, we can grasp with the clarity that you intended it to have what you want us to understand, how we can honor and glorify you in our lives. Lord, we pray that the gospel would always be central as we open your word, that we would depend upon Christ and his spirit to open our eyes and to prepare us to receive it, and that it would be a priority in our family, in our personal lives, and as we gather together as a church, Lord, that the, the word of God would always be lifted high and central in everything that we do, in every element that it would be informed, every element of our worship service would be informed by your word. And we, we do so because you are worthy and because we want to come before you in the right posture with a reverence And in the end, that we might understand how to apply it. Because we have heard from you. Because your spirit has been at work. And so stir us up with these things, Lord. Give us a, a, a earnest and eager desire to hear more from you. To crave, like pure spiritual milk, your word in 2022. It's in your name we ask it. Amen.